0: Father in heaven, our heart's desire is that our hearts would be made more pure, that remaining corruption after our new birth would be mortified, put to death, and removed, and that you would bring our spontaneous reactions, which come from the deep recesses of our souls into conformity to your beautiful reactions. That we wouldn't have to be such studied people. For freedom Christ has set us free. The freest of all people are those who just do what they feel like and it's always good. And we're not like that. We want to be more like that. And so we're asking for heart work, heart work, leading to mouth work and hand work and feet work and eye work, ear work. Help me now to be faithful to your word and to be an agent of the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds And the thoughts and the affections of the body which are not in conformity with Christ. In His name I pray. Amen. For about 10 years now, we have taken the Martin Luther King weekend and the Sanctity of Life weekend, and we have noticed and made much of the fact that they always come back to back in January because Martin Luther King's birthday is January 15 and the Roe v. Wade anniversary is January 22. And therefore, as the Lord would have it, there is a holiday weekend concerning one and an anniversary concerning the other. And we have taken that as a providential gift from God to apply the word of God and the gospel to the sins and the hopes that these two anniversaries signify. Sins. Martin Luther King anniversary weekend signifies the sins of ethnic enmity disfavor toward people rooted in ethnic differences. Disfavor toward people rooted in ethnic differences. Roe v. Wade anniversary calls attention to the sins of sexual licentiousness, selfishness, homicidal indifference to the life of the unborn hopes. Roe v. Wade anniversary signifies the hope that perhaps, God willing, men and women may increasingly see their sexuality as sacred, a sacred trust from their God and for the glory of Christ. The hope that more and more people come to see the unborn child as a a human being created in the image of God and full of precious potential to be redeemed and spend eternity praising Jesus Christ. The hope that whatever heartrending circumstances make a pregnancy seem absolutely unbearable and impossible, the hope that God always, always, always has a better answer than the killing of the baby. Better for the mother, better for the baby, better for the father, and better for the grandparents. Always. Martin Luther King weekend signifies the hope that someday, as he said, people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The hope that ethnic ill will and strife globally will diminish as people come to see each other as humans created in God's image rather than representative samples of dishonorable groupings of, of people. The hope that structures rooted in racism will collapse The hope that the cross of Christ will be exalted as the only final means of reconciliation between God and sinful man, and between sinful man and sinful man. Hopes and sins, the gospel, the word of God brought to bear on these two weekends, these clusters of sins, clusters of hopes, This is a gift to us. This is the providence of God and he has given us a gift. I wrote my blog last night and was put up today to just plead with pastors and Sunday school teachers all over America that they not waste this weekend and next weekend. It's a gift to the American church. It's a remarkable thing that he would take a Democratic issue and a Republican issue and smack them up against each other and say, don't you go there. Don't you split along those lines, my people. That's a gift to us. The issues raised by the Martin Luther King anniversary are greater than the black and white issues of our own unhappy history as a nation. They touch on the Kikuyu and the Luo of Kenya. They touch on the Kurds of northern Iraq. They touch on the Uyghurs of China. They touch on the Sinhalese and Tamil of Sri Lanka. They touch on the Turkish workers in Germany. They touch on the Latino immigrants, legal and illegal, in this country. They touch on the aborigines of Australia. And they touch on the Jewish people everywhere. The issues surrounding this weekend, this one, are many and global and diverse. So let your mind expand. Don't limit the implications of what Martin Luther King represents on this weekend. Even in our own country, the USA, the ethnic disrespect and strife have been much more widespread than the horrors of slavery and the Jim Crow era. Irish, Polish, Lithuanian, French, Italian, German, Hungarian, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, Scandinavian, Hispanic, and dozens more, in other words, all of us, have not always loved each other well in this country. The erosive power of time, and it's a remarkable power that time has, the erosive power of time has worn away many of the walls that separated those groups. But our troubled tribal ill will in this country was not pretty, and it is not over. Just sophisticated. Now, here's my hope for this message. My hope is that thousands of us, and I'm thinking all the campuses, thousands of us this weekend will put to death the remaining corruption that is in our hearts, that thinks or feels or acts with ill will toward others because of their race, race, or ethnicity. Thinks or feels, and there's the one that's hardest. That's the spontaneous part of me, the real me. Or acts, that's the easiest to control, wouldn't hit anybody. But how do you feel and how do you think? That's the deep work and that's what I'm after mainly. I'd like to see us as a church just just be real honest, do real heart work, and do real mortification work, real spirit work to put to death in us these things. The Bible says, put to death what is earthly in you in Colossians 3. And then it defines that with many phrases, several phrases. One of them is evil desires. So put to death evil desires. There's a way to find your evil desires and kill them. That's what it says. Put to death evil desires. That would include desires like the spontaneous desire to avoid somebody. Or the spontaneous desire to belittle somebody. just comes out of your mouth. A little click at a high school. There it is. You can see the hearts of these kids, right? Coming out of their mouths spontaneously. Evil desires to hurt somebody can get really ugly. It can get murderous. It can get genocidal. Christian, let's just put our feet on this real firmly as we start here to get into the text. The divide between the infinitely holy Son of God and sinful man, the divide between an infinitely holy second person of the Trinity and all of us humans in our selfishness and arrogance and self-exaltation and envy and greed and covetousness and all of our sin, the divide there could not be greater. And that didn't stop Jesus from doing this, which means, that Jesus moved toward you with sacrificial, dying, rescuing, affectionate love at a point where you were more alien to him than anyone has ever been to you. Therefore, if you feel and think and act with avoidance, or belittling or prejudice towards someone who's alien to you because they're alien to you, you are saying in effect Jesus has treated you at the cross in a stupid way. That's what you're saying. Because if you admired it, if you stood in awe of the alien distance that He crossed to get His arms around you, to die for you, you couldn't, you couldn't not act in accord with it. So my goal in this message is that thousands of us at Bethlehem would put to death the remaining corruption in our hearts that thinks and feels and acts with ill will Toward others because of their race or ethnicity. And I'm focusing on the heart because if we could mortify this sin, if we could root out this remaining corruption, we would be spared many sins and much of the fruit of love would abound, which is what we want to happen. So how should we proceed? What should we do? If you were doing what I'm doing right now and you had to do it for a tenth year in a row, find something new to say, what would you do? I want to do this. It's a very simple goal that I have. I want to remove one subtle self-justification that we use to protect our sinful prejudice. It's all very simple. I mean, there are a thousand other things that need to be done. So I've got my sights set on one subtle, self-justifying act that everybody does in every ethnic group in order to justify secret, sinful prejudices That's what I'm after. I would like to put my gun to the head of that self-justification, not you, I want to rescue you, put my gun to the head of that self-justification and kill it. That's my goal. Now before I tell you what that subtle self-justification is that you have used and I have used, I would like to go to the text and let it kind of percolate up. So here we are in John, the Gospel of John. What I'm about to show you is not the main point of the text. It is an implication of the text and is relevant for our situation, I believe. So verse 43, John 1, Jesus calls Philip to be his disciple. Verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael. And says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, Philip has believed in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one. And he's eager for Nathanael to know him also. And he identifies him. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies him with a group of townsfolk who live in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small town. Um. The commentaries tell me, I trust them, they've done the archaeological work, I haven't, that it it probably wasn't more than 2,000 folks. So, small town. We know from the Old Testament that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too small among the, nation, among the tribes, from you shall come one. So we know he's not from Nazareth. That's the way Nathaniel is thinking. So you got a no-count town. And you got Bible that looks like it's against What Philip is saying. You've done your homework here. I know these folks. They don't produce messiahs. And I know my Bible, Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So he says in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now the answer to that question in Nathanael's mind is no, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And he's wrong, dead wrong. His computations haven't worked for him. He made a mistake. Jesus does come out of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. He's gonna have to eat his words. He's gonna eat them very quickly. It's a great tribute to him that he eats them and repents and changes his mind instead of justifying himself. But he blew it. He made a mistake. Now, here's the question. What was the nature of Nathanael's mistake? I'm going to give you two possibilities. I'm going to say one was sinful, possibly, and the other, maybe not. So let's. Number one one way to describe his mistake is that it was sinful prejudice. Most of the commentaries say that. They use the word prejudice. Every commentary I looked at used the word prejudice. Against the people of Nazareth. He had a stereotype. That's our word. He had a stereotype of people from Nazareth. And he made a judgment call on the basis of his stereotype about whether or not Messiah could come from Nazareth. And he he made his judgment And he was wrong. So we'll come back in a moment to see why I'm saying, or what was sinful about that. But let me give you another alternative. What if if we simply say, Nathaniel did what we do every day and must do every day because of the way the human brain works? He made a generalization based on multiple experiences and biblical evidences, and he formed a probability judgment, hence the title of this message, Probability, Prejudice, in Christ. He, he thought something like this. My experience is that the folks of Nazareth are ordinary folks. In fact, they're ornery folks in general. I don't like them because they're ornery. And I don't see in the Old Testament that the Messiah can come from Nazareth. And therefore, from my general observations in Nazareth and and from my biblical studies, I will form the probability judgment that this is not the case. And Jesus of Nazareth is not the Messiah. Now, that way of thinking, generalizing from, from particulars of our experience, and then drawing probability judgments is inevitable and good. This is the controversial part of this message that has me running a huge risk. And uh, I'll show you what the risk is before we get to the end. And you, Whether you fall for the risk will determine where your heart is. It is inevitable and good that the human brain take note of particulars in life, form generalizing judgments, and act on probabilities. You must live your life that way. There is no other way to live it. Let me give you some illustrations. Mushrooms. Some of them are poisonous. So you observe that those with these features, and you observe enough of them, and see enough effects on rats maybe, That you know when a particular mushroom has those features, you don't eat it. And you save your life. Now this little mushroom that you're rejecting might say, don't treat me as part of this class. I'm an individual. Bite and see. But you don't do that. Your life depends on not treating this individual mushroom in isolation from your experience of other mushrooms. That's the way the mind must work, and every one of you of every shape and size and color does it whether you plan to or not. The brain processes information that way. Sometimes we make terrible mistakes. For example, you cross the I-35 bridge 1,000 times over the Mississippi. And you form judgments, it's a good bridge. I've proved it 1,000 times. It can hold up 30 tons of cement mixers. They check it. Probability, going to hold me up. In August 1st, 605. You were wrong. And thirteen people are dead. They blew it. Nobody would say they were sinners for that mistake. That's not a sinful mistake. That's a good judgment. Bridge is gonna hold me up. I'm crossing the bridge. When you form judgments and you make mistakes, it doesn't mean you're a sinner. Might. Might, but not always. Closer to the issue. I walked through this neighborhood thousands of times over the last 27 years. I walk to church, I never get in the car if I can help it. I hate cars. Lived for three years without a car in Germany. Loved it, hope there are no cars in heaven. <laughs> so I'm walking, seeing people. The walking parson. If I see a man of a certain group of features. I could describe some of the clothes. And I will conclude Somali and Muslim. And I could be wrong. But I'm seeing this man. Met, talked enough, seen enough. No, that is a Somali. And probably, statistically, Muslim, that's the way the brain works. That can be very useful, or hurtful. Another one, driving down 11th Avenue, white car, probably a Crown Victoria. Lights start flashing on the top behind me. I'm thinking, that's probably a policeman. Might not be a policeman. Might be a trick. Might be a trick. But I pull over. It's my judgment call. Seen enough of these cars. Highly unlikely that it's a trick. Could be a trick. I'm pulling over. Probability judgment. It's the way I live my life. All day long, every day. You can make horrible mistakes this way. For example, about 25 years ago, there was a doctor in this church who was doing his residency at the Henman County Medical Center Emergency Room, and he told me, I just saw the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. Deer season had opened, and they brought a man in, medevaced a man in, and he had a, an arrow, bow and arrow, arrow, in his back, through his heart, and coming out the front, lying on the table, just like, like in a cowboy movie. And he said his buddy shot him. Why did he shoot him? This is not intentional. The guy's devastated. He shot him because he didn't take enough data into account. He formed his probability judgment on brown and movement in a bush. That's all. Brown and movement in a bush and he shot. Bad idea so you can make colossal mistakes deadly mistakes doing what you must do you should do it really well let jesus put a stamp of approval on this way of thinking don't want you to think well, you're just you know you're just kind of analyzing your brain and how it works that's not very authoritative well you're right it's not jesus commended this way of thinking, in a kind of backhanded way one day, Pharisees came to him, this is Matthew 16, 2 and 3, Pharisees come to him and they ask him for a sign. Now, Jesus is very angry about this. He does not like being asked for a sign when he's given so many evidences of his reality. He knows that the request for a sign is coming from a hard heart who won't see the nose on their face. So they're asking for more and more evidences to justify their own hard-heartedness. And he sees that. He knows right what they're dealing with. And here's what he says to them. Matthew 16, 2. When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather. For the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today. For the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, and you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Their guilt rested squarely on their competencies to generalize. You get up every morning, and you have, and your fathers did, and your grandfathers did. And if it's red sky in the morning, Santa's warning, It's going to be trouble today. Generalization, don't get in your boat. At night, red sky. Red at night, sailors delight. You've done this for centuries. Generalizing from nature to what's going to be today. You could be wrong, but you live that way. And Jesus said, that you're so good at that means you're doubly guilty for not being able to see me and who I am. Okay. In other words, generalizing and living on the basis of probability judgments from what we've seen in the world is both inevitable and good. What about Nathaniel? Let's go back to Nathaniel now. Verse 45. Nathanael. We found him. We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth answers, I mean, Nathanael answers, for verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, the question again. Is this a non-sinful, fully warranted probability judgment like the bridge will hold? Or, is this a sinful prejudice? My answer is, it's a sinful prejudice. And here's the reason. If he were thinking about general statistics, general biblical data about the coming of the Messiah, I don't think he would have used the word... Good. He would have said, Can the Messiah come from Nazareth? Just like Mary would say, Can I have a baby? I mean that's not a sinful question for Mary to ask. How can I have a baby? I've never known a man. The angel didn't get upset with her, he said, The Holy Spirit will come across you, and you will conceive, and the child born in you will be holy, the Son of God. Okay. That's enough got my answer. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't see it. Micah 5, the people I know, they're just ordinary folks. How can the Messiah come from Nazareth? That's not sinful. But to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can see his heart. You can see his heart. The word good is a broad sweeping stereotyping of everybody in the city. Nothing good coming out of that city. He didn't have to say good unless he had bad feelings about those folks so it is possible then to both make judgments on the basis of probabilities in a legitimate way and it's possible to make them in a in a sinful way verse 46 end of the verse phil doesn't argue with him he says Come and see. In other words, give this man a chance. Don't lock him in. Don't lock him into your stereotype. You better not. You will blow it. Give this man a chance to be a man, to be who he is. Nathaniel. Moved from legitimate probability judgments to sinful prejudice. Philip says, come on, I'll show you. Judge him on the basis of his glory, not his group. Jesus says this to Nathaniel. It's really quite amazing. Verse 47. Behold, Nathanael an israelite indeed, indeed in whom there is no deceit in other words nathaniel's honest what you see is what you get just lets it all hang out all of its sin and all of the good and jesus commends his guilelessness To be guileless doesn't mean to be perfect. It means you're not two-faced. You don't have a forked tongue. I like people like that. I hate forked tongues. I hate two-facedness. I hate hypocrisy because Jesus hated it. Sinners, I can handle. Fakers, they're harder to handle. So, Nathaniel's not one of those, which means he's a good candidate for repentance. Good candidate for getting turned around in the way he blew it, and he turns around really quick. Nathaniel asks, "How do you know me?" Jesus says, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Now there go the stereotype. <laughs> you saw me. you're from Nazareth, and you saw me. Down the road, under the tree. How would you know I was under a tree? (laughs) And his his whole world is collapsing. His whole prejudicial framework, his whole way of seeing Nazareth and seeing what comes out of Nazareth is crumbling in front of him. And he's having to deal with a real human being. He had him all wrong. And so he says in verse 47, Rabbi, you're the son of God. That's quite a conversion. Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Okay, there's the text. Let me tell you what my point is again. My point is that there is a very fine line between legitimate probability judgments based on generalizing, a very fine line between that and sinful prejudice. Most of us cannot see the line. We move back and forth. God sees the line perfectly. And what I'm after is for us to become the kind of people who live on the right side of that line. Who never cross over. Even if we can't see it. You don't need to see it if you're a good person. If you're deeply good. One of my my sons heard I was going to speak on this. He, He said, they know they know. I said, I know they know. But that's all I preach on is what people know. All I do is remind people what they know. You know. My concern in this message is to plead with you and I'm telling you what that subtle self-justification is. Okay, here it is, is to plead with you not to let the legitimacy of probability judgments to function in your heart as a subtle self-justification for sinful prejudice. Do you hear that? This is the self-justification I said everybody does. I'll say it again. My aim in this message is to put my gun to the head of this subtle self-justification. Namely, we must generalize. We must form probability judgments about individual cases on the basis of group experience. We must. And we use it. We use it to justify sin. Because we're not sharp enough to see the line. But there's a line. There is a line. God sees it. I'm taking a huge risk in preaching this. I know I am. This is what thousands of pastors won't touch with a 10-foot pole. The risk is that there'll be two kinds of people. One, there'll be people who hear this message. This is gonna happen. I'm warning that it not happen. It will happen. This will happen. Because of how hard people are, how self-justifying some people are in spite of the fact that I'm saying, oh, Holy Spirit, come, come. Some people will hear this and in the hardness of their heart, they will take my words about generalizing and probability judgments And use them to cloak their prejudices. Piper said you have to. Piper said you have to. Piper said you have to. Have to think this way. That'll happen. That'll happen. And then others will criticize me that I fed right into that happening by bringing this up. I take the risk because they're another group of people and I do pray that it's most of us at Bethlehem. I do believe that. I do believe that it's most in this room and most on all the campuses. I hope it's true. There's another group of people. They are deep down aware, aware that they do this. And they're concerned about it. They don't know quite how to not do it. They don't wanna do it. They hate doing it. They'd like help not to do it. They're born again. They're saints. They're sinful saints. There's remaining corruption. Truly born again. Truly sinful. And I'm pleading that you'll say something like this. Yes, Pastor John, thank you. Thank you for helping me see the subtlety of my own sin. I must put this sinful prejudice to death. I must put my bent to death which justifies itself by saying we have to think this way. So let me close by doing what I hope will be practically helpful. If you have a good heart and you want to see the line drawn so that the way you have to think in almost all areas of life does not cross the line into sinful prejudice, what would it look like? What, what would it look like? What, how, how do you think about it? And I have, I have three descriptions of the good heart. and By the good heart, I mean the forgiven heart. The heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The heart longing to glorify Jesus Christ. The heart longing to be the most loving heart it can be. That's the good heart. It's not a perfect heart. It's just a good heart that God is in and he's working on. So here are the three marks of that heart. Number one, this I say in closing. The good heart desires to know people and treat people for who they really are as individuals not simply as representatives of a class or a group. You desire, we're talking heart now, you desire to know and treat people as persons in their own rights, to know them for who they are. Not just a sampling. If this were not the way we pursued life, Jesus would never be recognized as the Son of God because he's human and humans are sinful and they're not God. So Jesus can't be God and he can't be sinless. Done! unless you're willing to take Jesus on for himself, you, I will deal with you, not you as representative of a class of sinful fallen beings. You are God. Number two, that was a desire to know and treat people as individuals, not simply as a representative of a class. Number two, this good heart is willing to take risks to act against negative expectations and belittling stereotypes. I'd love to tell you stories, but we won't. Willing to take risks to act against negative expectations and belittling stereotypes. This works both ways between majority and minority cultures. Don't think this is only risks being taken by majority culture people. The bigger risk may have to go the other way. They certainly would have a hundred years ago. Two hundred. The reason so many slaves were so ill-treated and kept in bondage is because of these probability judgments. And the reason so many black slaves could save their lives from these wicked people is probability judgments. Don't go there. They're like that. It's a life damning and a life saving instrument, this generalizing. You can't live without it, and therefore both of us are in danger. Every single ethnic group is in danger. Whether you're looking to the majority power group, or looking to the minority weaker group, you're in danger. Always of a heart that is not taking the person in front of you as a person. And I'm saying, number two, that the good heart is willing to risk acting against negative expectations and belittling stereotypes in order to treat people well. Number three, this good heart is ready like Nathaniel, to repent quickly when you blew it. And you will blow it. You will blow it. If you join us on this longing to see racial diversity and racial harmony and ethnic diversity and ethnic harmony, first lesson, grade one in the school, you will blow it. And if your heart is good, you get up, you say, i blew it, and you'll stay at the table. Very few people do that. That's why most churches don't talk about this. They tried once to talk about it, and they blew it. They got banged up against the head because they tried, and they said, oh, I can't do that. I'm not going to try to take my ball and go home. Well, if your heart is good, you get up. And you keep going. So those are my three efforts to try to help you navigate a very difficult life. Life is complex. Our hearts are deceitful. Corruption remains. Let's put sin to death. May the Lord make us absolutely honest. May there be no two-faced hypocrites among us. May the Lord expose every remnant of sinful prejudice, and it's there. May he never use, may we never use, the legitimacy of generalizing in order to justify the cloak and cloak the sin of prejudice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want you to be glorified, long for you to be glorified in our folks not crossing the line into sinful prejudice. Help us to look at the person in front of us as person, individual, character, loved, respected, Father, this is a miracle. It's the miracle you died for, according to Ephesians 2 and Revelation 5. Come and work this miracle among us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.